that we just simply need to marry gifted education with education for our multilingual students because it's the experts in both of these areas who understand how to meet the needs of those students and we just need to collaborate and share this information because it's when we do that that we are able to meet all of the needs of our gifted multilingual students. Hey everybody, welcome back to Highest Aspirations, an education podcast from Elevation Education that explores how we can help make an impact on our nation's highest growing student demographic, multilingual learners. I'm your host, Steve Sofronis. Before we introduce this episode's guests, I want to take a moment to remind you that the interview you're about to hear is just one part of our exploration of this topic. You'll find multimedia resources, including a transcript of this episode, accompanying blog posts, videos, collaboration opportunities, and much more on our learning community. Visit bit.ly slash getmlresources for more information, and that is all lowercase. Our community resources are always free and available when you need them. Just use the search bar or the filters to find the resources that you are looking for. Here are some questions we discuss in this episode with our guest, Marcy Voss. Why are multilingual learners so often overlooked and underrepresented in gifted and talented programs and schools? How can educators better identify the many gifted English learners and adopt an asset-based approach moving forward? What are some strategies teachers can use to support language needs without compromising the depth and complexity of content and instruction? We discuss these questions and much more with Marcy Voss. Marcy is an educational consultant at Seidlitz Education who has recently retired after 36 years in public education. During her career, Marcy taught elementary and middle school students as well as coordinated gifted and special programs in several districts. As special programs coordinator for Born ISD, Marcy helped develop and implement their two-way dual language program. She currently serves as an ELL coach, curriculum writer, and staff development trainer. Her passion is helping ELL students to think at higher levels through the use of differentiated curriculum that incorporates depth and complexity. She is also interested in identifying and serving gifted ELL students. She is the author of Academic Language Cards, which provide activities using sentence stems requiring higher level thinking. It is probably evident in the interview that I really appreciated Marcy's perspective in a topic that doesn't seem to get the attention it deserves. I hope you enjoy the conversation. As always, thanks for listening to Highest Aspirations. Marcy Voss, thanks so much for joining us on Highest Aspirations. Thank you so much for inviting me. Yes, this is a topic that we have not covered. Um, And I have to say, 175-ish episodes in, that's pretty rare. So we're really excited to have you on board. We're going to bring in a few different people to talk about uh, this topic from a variety of lenses over time. So to get us started, um, I thought it would be kind of nice to talk a little bit about what a school day might look like for gifted and talented English learners who may not have been identified as such. And you've used, as well as us at Elevation, the video of um, Moises in uh, uh, in math class, which is an unbelievable video. If people haven't seen it, I'll link to it. I think everybody should watch it. But in case they haven't seen that clip, which kind of illustrates it, I think, pretty well, maybe give us a sense of what these students are experiencing at school to kind of tee us off. Certainly. Well, first of all, students who are gifted often spend much of their class time covering information that they already know, and they can become bored and disengaged in their learning. Gifted multilingual students may experience this as well as the added frustration of knowing that information 
but having difficulty in communicating their understanding. So teachers are not aware that they have that knowledge and maybe cannot address that need. Another factor is that gifted students are often misunderstood by their peers who do not think as they do. But our gifted multilingual students may also fear ridicule and embarrassment in speaking in class due to their lack of language proficiency. You know, these are just two examples. But what I'm trying to explain is that our gifted multilingual students experience all the frustrations of being a gifted learner in a setting that does not always address their needs, as well as all of the difficulties of learning another language. And if that student's in middle school, that's on top of all of the self-identity issues that any students face. So our gifted multilingual students um, have many social and emotional needs, as well as academic needs in the classroom. That's a really great way to kind of kick this off. And I, I really like the way you explained it because, you know, gifted and talented, just those words are very positive words. And you think well, these students have clear advantages over others, but the layers of complexity of how difficult it can be to be a student that's gifted and talented, whether or not they're learning English, um, there's a lot of layers there. And for English learners, you mentioned the frustration um, that, 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 that they must feel and the mis, kind of misunderstanding of, of their teachers and even their peers. Um, so that's a really nice way to kind of tee that off. I think that um, we can look at it as advantageous, which I suppose it can be if it's identified, but it can also be difficult, right? Yes, very true. So what are some of the main reasons why multilingual learners are underrepresented in gifted and talented programs? I mean, I've looked at the research and it's very clear that they are misrepresented. Well, Steve, there's many barriers and they exist at all points in the GT identification process. If you're looking at pre-referral, um, barriers exist um, in educators' lack of understanding of language acquisition and characteristics of gifted multilingual students. That's true in, for our general education teachers. But even our teachers who work with multilingual students are not always aware of the characteristics that gifted students display in that population. So our teachers are not recognizing who these students are. Mm -hmm. There's also, I think, an element of deficit-based thinking and instruction when it comes to our multilingual students. Oftentimes, our um, general education teachers have low expectations. They don't recognize that these students bring with them such a rich repository of skills and knowledge. But even in our multilingual settings, I think our multilingual teachers sometimes get so focused on language instruction and building language that they forget that these students really are um, great at thinking and problem solving skills. And they don't build the problem solving and thinking skills that these students need to have to really even to be able to show their gifts and talents. And then sometimes these students are placed in schools that are not culturally responsive and the curriculum is not uh, culturally relevant. Mm -hmm. So they may um, feel unaccepted, maybe even demonstrate acting out behaviors and not show their gifted abilities. But then even if they are recognized <clears throat> or even if they experience these things, there are still some barriers in the referral and assessment process. First of all, there is oftentimes a reliance on teacher referral. So if the students are not recognized by the teachers, they will not even be uh, referred for gifted assessment. But in the assessment process, there's overemphasis on standardized testing that might even be culturally biased. Um, the assessments may not be given in the student's stronger or native language. 
Um, even if student, if the assessments are given in the student's native language, sometimes the student's native language is not developed to the degree that they have the academic vocabulary in that language. So the assessment doesn't really show what they know. And finally, um, the assessments really don't take into account the unequal opportunities to learn. You know, many of our asylees and refugees have had interrupted educational experiences, right. or even if they come from other um, countries where they've had education, the education has not been the same as what we offer in the States. And so um, the students may not have had an opportunity to learn that information yet. So there's lots of complexities in the assessment process. But then even finally in the selection process, we oftentimes have a very narrow uh, definition of giftedness. And there's an over-reliance, for example, on IQ scores. And then even when we're not doing that, sometimes we um, there's an inequitable score comparison for selection. In the state of Texas, we're taught that students should be um, or, or experience or students, gifted students, demonstrate advanced performance in mm -hmm. relation to students of the same age, experience, and environment. But the problem is when we get to the assessments, we're not comparing students to the same age, experience, and environment. We tend to compare those students to the norm. Um, we use the um, general norming um, scores on the assessment, but they sometimes have not taken into account that population of students. And so our students are not comparing um, to students who've had a better educational uh, experience and uh, more opportunities. And then finally, um, our parents of our multilingual students have a lack of understanding of the school system and the need for gifted services. And so they often cannot advocate or do not advocate for their child. So there's many barriers in the assessment process. Um, I will say there are some promising practices as well. Um, we in the field of gifted education are recognizing finally um, that these barriers exist and are taking some steps to overcome them. But in many cases, these students are still experiencing the barriers to identification. Yeah. You know, what's interesting about everything that you just said, and I won't try to recap it all because you just mentioned a lot. Um, and, and I would, I would, I always say this, but I highly recommend people go back and listen again if you anything, anything you missed, because that was very rich. But what really struck me is that you brought up elements. I said at the very beginning that we haven't had a conversation about this specific topic yet, but we have had conversations about cultural responsiveness, about assessment, about academic vocabulary, about barriers to entry, about family engagement. So it seems to me that many of the best practices that really should be in place when we work with multilingual learners um, are going to help us hopefully be able to identify those gifted and talented students. So it, as much as yes, there probably are, and we'll get into this later, specific things that you can do to help support and identify those students. I, it seems to me, and I'd love to hear your response, that if we have a strong foundation and all of the things I just mentioned and everything that you just mentioned, we're going to be in a better place to, to identify these students. Is that my on track there? Yes, Steve, that's so true. Um, what I say oftentimes is that we just simply need to marry gifted education with education for our multilingual students, because it's the experts in both of these areas who understand how to meet the needs of those students. And we just need to collaborate and share this information because it's when we do that, that we are able to meet all of the needs of our gifted multilingual students. Sure. 
which is another topic that we've covered before collaboration among different. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. It's just such a fascinating um, kind of microcosm of everything that we've talked about um, over the last three or four years in this podcast. Well, um, so you mentioned teachers sometimes not having the ability or the training or whatever the case may be, the experience to know who these students are. So I know this is kind of an unfair question in the time we have, but I'd love to hear like, what are some characteristics that English learners may exhibit um, to help their teachers kind of identify them? Um, that's a good question, because I think that's where teachers can have a huge impact in the identification. Once they know what to look for, then they will be able to recognize which of these students are gifted and begin to meet their needs. Um, the first thing is that gifted multilingual students are um, gifted first. So you're going to see um, their thinking ability, they have advanced thinking ability, they can make connections, they learn new information quickly and easily, um, they have good problem solving skills. But what you see for gifted English learners is that, or what is different, I guess I should say, for gifted English learners is that the emphasis is on their gifts in the area of the cultural context of learning another language. So, for example, their characteristics related to learning include an advanced reading ability, but we may see that in their first language. They do exhibit creativity and problem-solving ability, and again, those advanced uh, thinking skills, the ability to make connections with the content that they're learning. They may also have an um, at or a grade above grade level um, abilities in math because that's not so language dependent. Right. But there are also some characteristics we can look at related to their language abilities. Usually these students have above average growth in English, English language proficiency. And I think that's one of the first things that we can notice in the classroom. These students may also code switch easily because they understand the nuances in language and they can select the vocabulary that really communicates what they're trying to say. And because they're so adept at language, they often interpret and translate for both peers and adults at high levels of accuracy. But in addition to language, we also see some characteristics related to their cultural and social behavior. They can navigate appropriate behavior successfully in both cultures because again, they can, they can, they can recognize those unwritten rules of behavior that are often uh, evident in those settings. They often exhibit social maturity and have a strong sense of pride in their culture. So it's when teachers look at um, all three of these factors, their characteristics in terms of language and learning and culture that we can truly identify these students. Yeah, that's really interesting. You know, the, the language piece, I feel like, is maybe the first thing that a teacher may notice, right? So, yes. I, and I suppose the, the ability to kind of decode and be kind of socially adept um, is also something that you could notice. But that language for people who are maybe untrained, um, might be the first thing that teachers notice. And if that's accurate and happy to hear any pushback there, it, is that an indication that a teacher may kind of want to take a deeper look or, or at least refer this student to someone who might be able to, um, to help further? Or is that too shallow of kind of an indication, the language piece? Oh, no, I think that's a good indication. And again, for an untrained teacher, um, that that would be the, one of the first things to look for. And you can see that by looking at their assessments as well. When uh, oftentimes these students skip from 
emerging to more advanced um, very quickly. And so simply looking at their assessment scores and just in the classroom, noticing how quickly they're picking up the language is a great indicator of giftedness and certainly does merit um, additional attention to. Yeah. And that's where having, you know, good access to high quality data and being able to kind of parse it is, is going to be really important. Um, that's great to know, because I mean, I think I'm not sure how many people know that, you know, because you, you look at language as something that some sort of, and I'm quoting here for those who can't see it, some people who are good at, and some people who aren't good, some people who are fast and some people who aren't. Um, and so I guess it's very easy to kind of take it out of the gifted and talented conversation, but if that's an indication, that's a great place for people to start. Um, so once we've identified gifted and talented English learners, um, what what's the next step? We'll get into some specific kind of instructional strategies in a little bit, but what, what's the next step that we take as teachers, administrators, whatever the case may be? All right. Steve, this is easy to say, but not as easy to do. I appreciate and- the, the, the preamble. <laughs> we- we simply need to identify their learn, lane, excuse me, learning and language needs, and then provide curriculum and instruction that meets those needs. Personalized learning, differentiated instruction, appropriate, in this case, probably not scaffold so much, but all of those things. Yes. Essentially, that's where I kind of go back to the idea of mirroring gifted education and our um education for multilingual students. We need to take what's best in both arenas and merge them together because we need to meet their advanced learning needs as well as support their language learning needs. Um, So I think if we use best practices in both areas, we can do that. And um, I've got some ideas as well I can share. Yeah. And we'll get into some of those. But so basically that means that you need, you need the data to be able to understand what where students are, you need the strategies to be able to implement, and you need those strategies to be able to be differentiated for students at different levels based on that data. And then you probably need, and this might be opening a whole new topic, um, you probably need the either the experience pre-service from teachers or probably more likely the professional development and the professional learning to be able to give teachers the skills to both analyze that data appropriately differentiate even if they have the tools, understand who these students are and which subgroups they're in, by the way, because we know that English learners aren't some homogeneous group. As you've mentioned, you have you have different different, you know, subgroups. Boy, Steve, <laughs> you just said it in a nutshell. I wish you could go out and preach that because that's exactly what is needed. Yeah. At which is as you said, easy to easy to say, harder to do, depending on sort of what resources and tools you have. All right. So you've kind of been teasing a little bit some some ways and some strategies. Let's let's get into some of those. I want to get into some instructional strategies that help all students, but could really be used specifically for gifted and talented students. Um, and so I, I was able to look at some of the resources that you have and kind of do a little bit of a deep dive. And I'm gonna, so a lot of these questions come from that. And anybody who's seen you present, I think will be familiar with this. You've talked about applying um, Kaplan's elements, uh, depth and complexity to help students develop a deeper understanding of the curriculum and make connections to what they have learned in other content areas. There's a lot to unpack here for sure, um, but could you explain sort of what this is first um, and why you think it's useful in helping to identify gifted and talented multilingual learners? Certainly, Steve. Well, my background actually is in gifted education. So I was familiar with gifted education and taught gifted children before I started working with multilingual students. And is that, let me stop you for one sec. Is that an advantage or a disadvantage? 
I think it's an advantage. Me too. And I also had the advantage of hearing Collier and Thomas speak about um, programs for multilingual students that needed to be what they called enrichment programs. And so as I was listening to them, a light bulb went off in my head and I thought, oh my goodness, we need to teach them in the same way that we teach our gifted students. So I think I immediately started making connections between the two fields. And I've had a lot of training in um, a model of thinking called depth and complexity. And essentially, it's kind of like a model of thinking like Bloom's taxonomy. It's a way of getting students to think at higher levels. But this particular model was developed um, by Sandra Kaplan, Betty Gould, and Sheila Madsen in the 1990s. And they were working in California at the time. And what they did was they developed a framework of thinking to help teachers differentiate curriculum in order to help students utilize a more sophisticated understanding of content and develop a deeper and more complex way of understanding that content. They identified 11 elements that students needed to master a subject and understand content in a deeper, more complex way. And these elements can be used in any content area or any grade level to help raise student achievement and differentiate the instruction. Many gifted programs use this model of thinking as a way to address the advanced learning needs of their gifted students. But actually, the model can be used in any classroom mm -hmm. to give students an opportunity to develop and display their thinking abilities. So when we see our multilingual students' ability to think by giving them these opportunities to do so using this model, we can better identify those students who are gifted. So sort of another connection with with things, topics we've talked about before that good instruction for English learners is good instruction for all students. In this case, it's, it's, this is a, this is a model that is good instruction for everybody, but maybe particularly useful uh, for those gifted and talented students, particularly if you don't know who they are. And even more particularly, if they're multilingual learners, is that accurate? Yes. Um, it's again, depth and complexity is, is just a model of thinking and it can be used in conjunction really with any other strategy. Yeah. So, for example, sheltered instruction is a way that we support language, um, the language learning needs of our multilingual students. But in and of itself, it doesn't exactly address, address thinking. So if we incorporate depth and complexity with sheltered instruction strategies, we can address both the learning and the language needs of our gifted multilingual students. So, for example, we could provide a graphic organizer, like a graph or a chart, which would be our sheltered instruction strategy, but we could ask for students to look at patterns in the data, which is getting them to dig down deeper in terms of their thinking. So it's applying the model of depth and complexity. Or we can use a picture as a pre-reading or pre-writing prompt, again, sheltered strategy, and ask students to look at the events from multiple perspectives, which is applying an element of depth and complexity. So we can do both at the same time for our gifted multilingual students and address both language and learning needs. That's great because you just actually got into the next question I was going to ask you, which is kind of how I had read about that and seen that in some of the work that you've done about uh, adding it to shelter instruction. So let's go to the next question, which is a little bit more specific. You know, one of the most common instructional strategies that I hear about quite frequently, and I know we both uh, our mutual uh, friend and colleague is John Seidlitz, and 
we, we, we've talked to John about strategies um, like Q triple S A. Um, and I've talked to others, including John and, and, and people like Jeff Swears and others about turn and talks and, 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 and speaking in class sentence stems. So my question is what about adding to, what are some examples of how we can apply depth and complexity to those therefore, they're, therefore, thereby giving them sort of more flavor and more depth for lack of a better term. So you can reach more students. Well, thank you, Steve. Um, actually what I do is I use sentence stems as a vehicle to incorporate both depth and complexity and um, children instruction, and then use those sentence stems in all of those structured conversation strategies. So for example, if I wanted students to look at the big idea of a topic, which is an element of depth and complexity, I might use a sentence stem that begins, what is one generalization that summarizes blank? And then I can include my content and the academic vocabulary that I want my students to use in the blank. So my question might be, what is one generalization that summarizes how living organisms within an ecosystem interact with one another and their environment? Then using that sentence uh, question stem, I can provide sentence stems differentiated for language ability for students to use in their response, whether it be in speaking or writing. So a stem for an emerging bilingual student might simply be one general statement is. But my stem for a student with more advanced thinking ability or language ability, I guess I should say, um, would be one generalization that summarizes how living organisms, organisms within an ecosystem interact with one another and their environment is. So notice how I incorporated the brick terms, living organism, ecosystem, and environment, and the mortar terms interact one another and there in my response stem for the students. So in using that response stem, the students are not only um, supported with a STEM so they can complete that sentence using academic vocabulary, but they're using specific academic vocabulary that's specific to the science that I'm teaching, as well as introducing them into some of the mortar terms that they need to know to support the academic um, vocabulary. So in doing, using that STEM, then they are thinking in in-depth complex ways, about the content using advanced academic vocabulary. Then that STEM can be used in many strategies. So for example, that could be the STEM that students use as a, in a turn and talk activity, mm -hmm. or it could be, that could be the question that I presented earlier and the STEM that they're using in a QSSA strategy. So the STEMs can be used in many different strategies that we uh, offer to structure the conversation for our multilingual students. Yeah, you know, I, I love that because sentence stems are usually a pretty simple entrance point into, you know, make scaffolding in any way. And um, and then incorporating them into all those other strategies that you talked about, I think are a great way to go. The other thing is kind of leading me to my next question um, is that your, your framework here is kind of for or was when we were just talking about multilingual learners who are at different levels. You talked about the emerging student, keeping it relatively simple, and then going to a more advanced student and adding more. So a lot of this is, you know, it, it, it seems like it's a great structure 
um, for a teacher to be able to apply some agency and some creativity and some contextual knowledge and information about their own students to different activities. But this, this probably, I would imagine, is not just good for, for multilingual learners. And in most classes, content classes, you're going to have classes that are, you know, have a, students of a variety of different, uh, uh, speaking different languages, different cultures, different academic abilities, et cetera. So how do these ideas and strategies we've discussed so far work for all learners, particularly when it comes to acquiring academic language, which in the STEM classes, everybody needs to do? That is so true, Steve. I like to say that all students are academic language learners. And in workshops that I give, I like to tell this story that, you know, I'm a teacher. So as I was raising my children, I did things that I knew would help them learn language. I would read to them. I would talk to them. I would take them to places and help them learn new things. But I will tell you this. We did not sit around the dinner table talking about the difference between eukaryotic and prokaryotic <laughs> cells. <laughs> so where did my children, who are not um, language learners, or at least English language learners, where did they learn those terms? In their science teacher's classroom. So all teachers are academic language teachers and all students are academic language learners. And so anything that we are doing in the name of our um, multilingual students in terms of lear language learning ability, and especially in terms of academic language learning ability, we really help all of our students. You know, I think there's an important distinction between the expression that we hear quite frequently, which is all teachers are teachers of language, and what you just said, which is all teachers are teachers of academic language. It strikes me that that first one can really, um, how, do I, how do I phrase this? It, it, it can really anger uh, sort of old school content teachers who feel that they are teachers of content. Let's say it's a math teacher or a science teacher or a history teacher, whatever the case may be. P people can get very defensive that they're a teacher of, of content. But when you express it, and this is a little bit different than the topic that we're talking about, so bear with me, but I think it's interesting. But when okay. you express it as all teachers are teachers of academic language, then it becomes maybe a little bit more of a, an easy pill to swallow where it's like, well, yes, I teach history. So there are certain terms that my students need to know, or maybe a better example, I teach science with your example. I just think that's a really interesting way to look at it. And I appreciate you sort of making the distinction. That's a good point. I guess it's a little more palatable that way for content teachers, but I think they can identify when you start sharing um, the academic vocabulary that they take for granted, uh, when they understand that this is new vocabulary for all students, I think it does help them understand the need for them to really spend time in helping our students learn that vocabulary. And then when you point out that that's the vocabulary they need to know to be successful on the exams, that really catches their attention. Um, I like to use examples of um, questions from our state assessment, because I think oftentimes they're surprised at how those questions are worded and the level of sophistication of language in the questions. And then they start to realize, oh my goodness, if I want my students to perform well on those exams, I really do have to focus on the language. Yeah, a bit of a detour there, but a, a detour that I'm glad we took. That's important, great. Um, so as we kind of wrap up here almost, I, I wanna draw some attention to some uh, of the actionable strategies you recommend for taking an asset-based approach. And I use the word actionable on purpose because 
as I mentioned earlier in our conversation, you kind of hit on a lot of the major topics that we covered on the Highest Aspirations podcast over the last few years. But I think sometimes we do a bit of a disservice, and this is on me, for not going deep enough. We talk about asset-based learning quite a bit, but it's a bit of an echo chamber. We don't really give it a specific kind of um, uh, actions that we can do to, to, to create it. And I think this is something that you do um, pretty well. So what are some ways that we can help students feel empowered? Um, and and how, how do we find what you call their funds of knowledge? I think that really plays into what it truly means to take an asset-based approach. So I'd love to hear you explain that. Well, see, I think that sometimes we get so focused, again, on the language learning needs of our multilingual students that we forget to address their strengths and their potential. And I I think, again, when it comes to recognizing gifted students, oftentimes we have to look for that potential. And actually, the term funds of knowledge comes from Luis Mole and his uh, colleagues. And what they say is that students bring with them funds of knowledge from their homes and their communities that can be used for concept, concept and skill development in the classroom. So for example, they may know how to make tamales or they may know how to care for a baby or they may know how to prepare a Seder. If we can start with what they do know and bridge to the new learning that we're trying to teach them, we can capture that fund of knowledge and build on it and develop that strength. Um, classroom practices sometimes underestimate and constrain what students are really able to do intellectually when students really have a rich repository of cultural knowledge that we can tap into and build from in our instruction. So we need to take steps, first of all, to learn what our students' funds of knowledge contain and then tie our instruction to what students know and understand. So, for example, we can ask them if, if we're trying to teach expository writing, we can ask them to explain how to make tamales, for example. Um, or in the math, we can tie their math problem-solving skills to um, things that they do know how to do in the home, or maybe even their parents' careers. Um, maybe their their parents and um, father is a carpenter. You can tie, tie in what you're doing to the type of skills that their father might use to help them understand the new uh, measurement skills that they want to teach. And when we do this, we need to remember that many of our students really already have advanced thinking and problem solving abilities, or they have the potential to develop that. So we need to continue to develop and build on thinking and problem solving skills as we present our instruction. Because as we give them opportunities to practice their thinking and problem, problem solving skills, then we can develop those to the degree that those students really can reach their potential. And again, tying this back to kind of the, the topic uh, that we're discussing today, which is gifted and talented, that is something that I feel like is going to help all students, but it's going to particularly help identify a little bit more quickly who those students might be who are gifted and talented, give those teachers the indication that they are possibly in that category and then allow us to explore further. Am I sort of on track there? Yes, totally. Great. Yeah. So, so much of it is about, again, like this is another topic we've talked about quite frequently. I love the trend here. It's this relationship building, right? You have to build a relationship with students, understand who they are and where they come from and, and what they know, the funds of knowledge in order to be able to, um, to, to kind of bring that out. Amen. Great. So there, I mean, there's a lot here that we've discussed. You have a lot of resources. We'll make sure that we, that we link to those. And I'll talk to that about that in just a second. But one question that as we wrap up that I love to ask everybody who comes on the podcast is 
is um, if there's a book or another resource or film or anything um, that has uh, influenced you in any way. And this can be really wide open, personally, professionally, whatever the case may be. So love to hear if you have something that you'd that you'd like to recommend. Okay, <laughs> that's a good question. Um, personally, oh, all right, this is on a personal note, but reading the Bible really helps me focus on loving my kids. Um, but professionally, I think one of the books that really informed many of my practices in working with multilingual students is John Seidlitz's book, Seven Steps to a Language-Rich Interactive Classroom. And just to put a real quick plug, there is a new edition out that really focuses on helping um, apply those skills and build thinking. So there's an emphasis on not just doing the skills to a lower level, but taking that up to a stepping it up is what the book refers to as stepping up each of those steps so that we are really encouraging students to think as we are building uh, some of the basic skills and getting them to listen, speak, read and write. So that would be uh, a great book. There are not as many books on depth and complexity. Um, I, for some reason, Sandra Kaplan never liked to really write, uh, but there are resources out there. And especially the inter- if you just Google depth and complexity on the internet, you can find a wealth of resources. And um, you know, I've used some of those resources to help build my practice as well. Great. Appreciate those recommendations. And one more plug and maybe a little teaser about uh, John Seidlitz's book, uh, Seven Steps. It, it, we'll be talking with him coming up really soon, and he'll be uh, on the podcast pretty soon after your episode gets released. I'm actually waiting now for my copy uh, to come in the mail. So looking forward to that and diving in. And maybe we'll get into some of the elements that we talked about today and uh, with John. I'm sure we will. Um, finally, last question, how can people learn more about the work that you're doing if they want to find out more? There's so much to know here and you have so many great resources. Well, thank you. Um, I, I will say that right now my work have been, has been um, primarily confined to workshops and conference presentations. Um, I recently presented this topic for the National Association for Gifted Children at their conference this past November in Denver. And I will be presenting this topic next week at NABI. Um, I do hope to write a book and elaborate on these ideas in the future. But presently, I have developed a few resources that teachers might use. Um, in particular, I have what's called talk cards. They're thinking in academic language called thinking with academic language and knowledge. And essentially they are differentiated sentence stems for each element of depth and complexity. Um, And those um, are available through J Taylor Education. And I've also written some academic language cards that don't necessarily integrate depth and complexity, but they are differentiated stems, um, meaning that it addresses four different levels of language proficiency and focus on higher level thinking skills. And those um, have been um, developed by Seidlitz Education. So there's a a few resources out there. But um, I'm hoping that maybe in the future I can, um, like I said, write a book and share more. Well, I will link to all of the resources that you just mentioned. One note about Nabe, it's in a week, but by the time this episode comes out, it will have already happened. So hopefully people, people, went, people went to Nabe and enjoyed it, or there's a way that they can access it uh, later. Um, and, but the... Um, everything else we'll link to. And you've kind of already said it. And so now you've put it out in the universe that a book, uh, hopefully from you will be coming out in the near future. And I can tell you, I mean, it is a fascinating topic. And one thing that I, that I've learned, if I may, 
um, through researching for this and just talking with you now is that this is not like a niche sort of area that lives on its own. I mean, it's very tied and very connected to all of the topics that we talk about every day in multilingual education. And honestly, that's that's what I've walked away with this from this conversation with. And this is somebody who is, I was a classroom teacher for 17 years. So I learned a lot and I'm sure there's a lot more we can learn. And we look forward to uh, to learning more in that book. And and with that, Marcy Vos, thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate uh, your time. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Highest Aspirations. If you liked our show, please be sure to join the ELL community at elevationeducation.com slash ELL community, where you'll find all the episodes of Highest Aspirations and other resources to help educators maximize the impact on their English language learners. Also, let us know how we're doing by writing a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts.